Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Susan Dunlap, author of Shelter Theology, The Religious Lives of People Without Homes, published by Fortress Press in 2021. Dr. Dunlap serves as consulting faculty and director of the MDiv MSW dual degree program at Duke Divinity School and as the chaplain at Urban Ministries of Durham in North Carolina. Susan Dunlap, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. I look forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. Thank you. Um, So to start, um, could you give us uh, a little background on yourself, um, your scholarly background? Um, You're a Presbyterian minister, so perhaps your background as a minister, um, and how you became interested in this topic. Sure. I grew up in a mainstream Presbyterian home and went to church all my life and uh, eventually became a a Presbyterian minister and uh, served a small church in Baltimore. And then I decided I wanted to do further work in the field of theology and settled on uh, pastoral theology, which a way to sum up that is that it's the Um, interplay between uh, psychology and theology. It's much more complicated than that, but that's one one way to think about it. And went to Princeton Seminary and got a PhD and um, eventually ended up at Duke teaching, teaching pastoral theology. Um, In time, I realized that I was teaching the art of caregiving, but not engaging in the practice of caregiving. And so I decided I wanted to be engaged in what I was teaching. So I cast about for a place to be a chaplain or a minister or a someplace that I could serve as a pastoral caregiver and ended up at the one of Durham, Durham, North Carolina's two emergency shelters, homeless shelters. And I walked into the office of the director and said, hello, my name is Susan Dunlap. I'm a Presbyterian minister and I would like to be your chaplain and you don't have to pay me. And he greeted me warmly and welcomed me on board. And one way to think about that is I, as a caregiver, I was professionally homeless and he welcomed me into that community and gave me a home for practicing my, uh, the art of pastoral care. So, um, and I became interested in particular in homelessness because, I mean, you know, I could have gone anywhere. I could have gone to be a chaplain in a hospital or uh, volunteered at a large suburban church or, I mean, there are many places to be a pastor, but I did decide that I wanted to go work with Durham's poorest population. And that really arises out of my family and my family's commitments. Um, My father uh, was a surgeon working for the Presbyterian Church in Iran, and that was in the 60s. And so from the very beginning, my faith has been associated with service, with ministry with people on the margins. And so it made sense for me to go uh, to work with unhoused people um, as a chaplain. And over time, I became really fascinated with both the form of their religious expressions and 
the uh, the content of their religious beliefs, and so uh, that's how I I became interested in this topic, and uh, didn't start out to write a book, but and resisted writing a book for a while, and um, eventually just decided to plunge in and and go ahead and write it. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you did. Um, I was saying offline that I, I spent a number of years working with the unhoused um, homeless people without housing, and we can talk about the language choices um, in San Francisco. And, and I, I wish I had had a book like this um, at that time, because I, I think that would have been just useful to think about sort of the, the spiritual needs um, of these of these wonderful people, because often we attend to their material needs um, first and foremost, and sort of set that aside or don't address it at all. Uh, yeah, as uh, as you probably read, we think of them as people to be fixed rather than uh, people as sources of wisdom about God and spirituality. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so just to sort of define, uh, I, I think perhaps the most critical <laughs> term, um, since it is also the title of your book. Um, so, so what, what is shelter theology? That, well, I identified several features of the predominant theology there. And I should add that this book by no means explores all unhoused people in their theology. It doesn't even explore all the people in the homeless shelter where I worked. It's really an exploration of the religious faith of a subset of people who attended the prayer service that I led. And I identified different features of that theology. And in particular, um, it's a theology that has great confidence that God will protect them and will provide for them and will not abandon them. It's a deep, visceral, sort of precognitive stance uh, that God is there for them. And uh, which is, of course, sounds odd to some of us because we think, well, you know, excuse me, you're, you've been living in the bushes and in an elevator shaft for the last 12 years. How is God providing for you? And one of the things that I found fascinating is that they were still able, under those circumstances, to uh, find, to have a confidence that God will provide what they need, even if it's just uh, a bus ticket that they found on the road that will get them to their next meal. And so that's one feature, the confidence that God will provide, and which leads into the next feature, which is a strong emphasis on gratitude, which we know now from uh, you know clinical studies and Oprah Winfrey and different sources that gratitude is a life-giving stance. It's a stance that focuses on um, what is present instead of focusing on lack. And I just think it's interesting that these people who have um, very little uh, material possessions nevertheless find uh, have habits of gratitude for what they do have. Um, I also found that they believed that God had a purpose for their lives, that um, all of their suffering is for the unfolding of God's purposes in the world, and uh, that their suffering, in other words, is not wasted. It's drawn into a larger narrative of God in the world and uh, will be used by God for, uh, for some good. And um, I can remember one person who told me the story of his life and how he had uh, grown up in pretty abusive circumstances and uh, eventually 
um, ended up in prison and was in and out of prison for 25 years. And um, he's out of prison. He uh, was living outside. And um, he was telling me the story of his life. And he believed that all of these difficulties around incarceration and abuse and um, living without a home, all of these were going to coalesce and were preparing him to be a teacher of youth, to teach them how to avoid what he had experienced, what he had fallen into. And um, I just think that's remarkable. It would be so easy for him to believe that life is meaningless, uh, life is grim, um, there's nothing worthwhile to give your life to, uh, but he didn't. He believed it was all coming together for a purpose. And I saw that uh, again and again um, in what we could call shelter theology. Um, There's a strong belief in the power of prayer that if you pray for it, it's going to happen. Um, and another belief that I was so struck with, because it's certainly not in my tradition, but it's a strong belief in the presence of the devil. And there are a lot of reasons why we might be critical of that belief. We might think, um, oh, that's just pre-modern, magical, uh, superstitious thinking, Um, Other people have said that the belief in the devil is a category to deflect responsibility for what you have, um, ways that you have failed. You know, the devil made me do it and so forth. But I found it to be a very um, sustaining category as a means of explaining evil which is very much present in their lives, and a way of shoring up defenses against all that is evil in the world. And I found myself, and I still do find myself, wanting to defer to their characterizations of evil because they have borne the brunt of evil in a way that I haven't. And in particular, I'm thinking of social injustices. Social evil um, has, you know, principalities and powers, if you want to call it that. Uh, They bear in their bodies and souls the scars and the wounds of um, social evil in terms of poverty, mass incarceration, uh, lack of access to health care, mental health care, and so forth. So I'm prone to defer to their ways of talking about evil um, because I think that they are uh, face-to-face with it more often than I am. Um, so those are some of the characteristics of what I would call shelter theology. Um, and again, these are distillations of stories I've heard in the prayer service, um, interviews I've done. I did 40 interviews. I spoke to people in focus groups. And if I were to dis- distill some of the main features of this theology, uh, This is what I would say. God will provide practices of gratitude. God has a purpose for our suffering. Prayer is effective and uh, the devil as a category for evil. Yeah, well, I I think that answer hints at a lot of things. Um, One, that you were both a chaplain and a scholar. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, exactly. So you you were observing just, you know, in your role as chaplain, but as this became a book project, I I presume sort of your critical scholarly lens started to turn on and sort of your ethnographer lens and whatnot. Um, So I imagine that was was a lot to balance given... um, that you were working with people who had extremely pressing spiritual needs as well as material needs. And right. This isn't, you, you didn't get into this to write a book, but you, you know, obviously this project evolved into something maybe bigger than you had expected. Right. Exactly. Um, and I felt like, well, as I said, I, I, I deferred writing it for a long time because, um, I, there's 
it just felt like it was fraught with a lot of pitfalls. Um, and one person, a very good friend of mine, pointed out that one of the reasons she has hesitated to talk about people on the margins is because your experiences with them, particularly in prayer or in a worship setting or in pastoral caregiving, they the experiences broach on an experience of the transcendent. And it's so difficult to express in words experiences of transcendence, uh, the extraordinary mercy and power of God. And so I think that that's at least one reason why I hesitated, because those I had many of those experiences. Uh, understandable, right? Oh, you're not just dealing with the spiritual sort of lives of these folks, but also, you know, their internal lives, right? The perhaps the the most vulnerable parts of their lives, and they are already people living in a pretty vulnerable state. Um, so, yeah, can certainly appreciate that. Um, so, so okay, we've we've talked shelter theology. You've referenced the prayer service, which I think is, from my reading, is is central to sort of your shelter theology, your role. Um, so, so what does the prayer service include? What does it look like, feel like, sound like, um, based on (laughs) my reading of your book? It sounds like, uh, it was co-evolved, right? Uh, You came in with an idea and then obviously the folks who participated, um, and not that you always had sort of consistency from meeting to meeting, but, you know, you sort of co-evolved this really important, um, prayer service. Yeah, I like that phrase, co-evolved. That, that's exactly what happened. I started out um, thinking of a contemplative space, um, you know, a darkened room with some candles lit and some sort of wordless, gentle piano music in the background. And I imagined people showing up and sitting quietly uh, in the in the shadows and with the music and then maybe going up in the front and saying I want to ask you to pray for my children and then sitting down uh, the only f- uh, structure of the prayer service really was light a candle and say a prayer well what happened over time which was so fascinating to me, is people brought their own religious forms. Of course they did. They brought the religious forms and beliefs that they had grown up with, and they did not defer to this form that I had laid out of a sort of contemplative, wordless music form. And so they brought mostly Southern evangelical Black religion, um, it's 90% of the people that came to the prayer service were African-American. And so they brought those forms. They brought uh, testimony and preaching and certain formulaic prayers and uh, certain ways of encouraging each other. They brought uses of uh, proverbs and sayings, and uh, it just blossomed over time into a place where people were talking a lot to each other, encouraging each other. Uh, There were times when there was just the music playing and people were praying, but there was a lot more storytelling and, as I said, mutual encouragement than I had ever imagined before. And Some of those experiences were some of the most meaningful experiences. I'm thinking of uh, when one woman who had been coming to the service for a while, she was um, sort of a larger, sort of a large body, and uh, she went to the front and was sort of weepy and said that she believed that the reason there wasn't a man in her life was because of her body size. And, um, you know, we were all, we were all so, we were all sad and moved by her sorrow. And then someone um, in the room 
started talking about how he understood because he had a leg amputated uh, from a time when he had been shot just across the street from the shelter. He'd been shot and had uh, had his leg amputated. And um, he understood what she was going through and told a story about how people hadn't wanted to be around him because it was logistically difficult to be with him as a one-legged man. And that moment of empathic connection was... Um, you know, to me, it it bordered on the divine, the the mutual love and compassion that was shared at that point. Um, so, those are those are the kinds of things that happened. They're not always. Sometimes it was boring. Sometimes it was contentious, like when a woman uh, <laughs> included in her prayer, sort of slamming another woman in the prayer service. Uh, that was a bit unpleasant. Um, when someone got up and walked across the room and started screaming in someone's face, that was sort of unpleasant. But what was interesting was, after that screaming incident, is the everyone else in the prayer service uh, was sort of united in that we don't this is a sacred place. We don't want that kind of thing to happen. And they made a distinction between this space here in the prayer service and the world out there, or the street, they sometimes called it. And so it wasn't only up to me to maintain the um, sacred nature of this space. They all took responsibility for it, too. And... Um, that was very gratifying to see that happen, to see the, the, the shared leadership in this space. Um, yeah, so I never, there was no structure, there were no sermons, there were no prescribed readings. Uh, the, our publicity said, you know, you can be uh, Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim. You don't have to believe anything. You uh, or don't know what you believe. You're welcome. Everyone is welcome in this space. And so, uh, and and again, the the people in the prayer service um, repeated that commitment to newcomers that this is a place where you don't have to believe something specific. You're welcome. You're welcome just as they are, just as you are. And so um, I, was, I was happy to see that, uh, th that spread of kind of a culture of welcome uh, and recognition of, of an acceptance of diverse spiritual and religious um, forms. Yeah, as you uh, were describing the prayer service, this didn't occur to me while I was reading the book, uh, but during your description, it, it sounds like some of the unprogrammed Quaker meetings I've gone to, where there's a certain level of um, both welcome, but also surprise at, at what will <laughs> what will occur during your time together. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as a theologian and as a, a pastor, I interpret that as the signs of the spirit blowing through the room and, and revealing things. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the spirit literally moving you. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've you've alluded to this and I, I don't want to paint a picture of folks living on the streets as mentally ill but there are certain uh, mental health issues that i think we are now able to talk to in ways that you know previous generations did not want to um so so you write extensively about mental health obviously you, you've talked earlier about caregiving so i'm wondering um what role you think, if, if any, um, these prayer services played in sort of tending to um, the mental health needs, but also sort of the, just the internal sort of world needs of uh, the folks in your shelter theology community? Um, what role did I play in tending to mental health needs? Uh, the, the, the prayer services, you know, if, uh -huh. if there oh, was sort right. of a collective sort of I, perhaps you were tending in individually, but but if there was sort of a collective effect um, that you observed through these prayer services, well, 
Yes, I'm the I mean we all know that people living with mental illness need community. They need gracious, accepting community. A community that won't be judgmental, a community where you can talk about your struggles with mental health without fear of being abandoned. And I really feel like it was that kind of space. I mean, we had people get up in the prayer service and say, um, I'm depressed, I'm bipolar, I'm schizophrenic, and I have a borderline personality disorder. And so they would just say it out there and we would roll with it. And the more and more in the field of mental health care, the the importance of a caring, accepting, non-judgmental community in, um, in, in maintaining mental health, it, it's just, it's recognized as being so important. So I suppose that's sort of the first feature of our prayer service that, that I think is the most important. Um, I've had, uh, thinking of one woman in particular who talked about how coming into the prayer service was really helped her with her anxiety and um, that it was a very calming place for her. Um, and I'm, yeah, that's, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm thinking about with mental health. The, uh, one of the things that I noticed, particularly with one person that, you know, our, our mental health care system is, dreadful in this country. But some people do get connected up to um, community mental health care. They uh, find low-income housing. They uh, are able to eat. They find ways to eat. But it still doesn't meet that need for human connection and for community. In fact, this one guy uh, talked about how he went to many different churches and never found, never found a place where people accepted him and welcomed him. And so that was a reminder that people need more. They need more than just social services um, to feel whole, to feel, um, to feel, yeah, to feel connected to life. Yeah. Oh, 100% agree. Um, the organization I worked for in San Francisco, right? We, we would we would work with folks who were homeless when we met them, um, but often during our time together, they, they would move into you know low income housing, and they would have a home and they would have you know food and healthcare and all these needs met, um, but they would continue to come back um, to you know to our building because they had community there that just didn't exist in you know, the, the SROs, the single room occupancy buildings that they were living in often. Um, and they would come back for years, even if they had been off the streets for, you know, five, 10 years. And it was all about that community and all about, you know, finding people who aren't just, you know, there to spend time, but like can actually understand the particular experience of living on the streets, you know, living in that vulnerable state. Um, and I, I think you're right. That is an underappreciated part of working with people um, to move off the streets and stay off the streets. Right, right. I mean, what a what a a wonderful uh, place for people to go back to. That's wonderful. I, yeah, that's yeah, great. It, it was and is a special place. Uh, North Beach citizens, for anybody in the audience who's wondering, uh, we can link to them in the show notes. Um, so, so you, you've hinted in your last answer at um, <laughs> some of the issues uh, that lead to folks um, living on the streets. Um, so, so I'm wondering if you could reflect on the links that you observed in Durham, in Durham, North Carolina, um, where you work and live, um, between the criminal justice system um, and um, folks living without housing, living in economic poverty, and experiencing um, sort of white supremacy and racism. Um, you certainly note connections throughout the book, so I'm wondering if you could sort of tease those out. Well, I'll um, try to reach all of those low sci, but let's see. 
Right. So the criminal justice system is, of course, one reason why people end up without a home in the first place, that they've served a, you know, 19-year prison term, and the small amount of support that they get when they get out of prison uh, just doesn't last. They're unable to find a job because of their record, and so they become unhoused. Uh, that's one one way to uh, think about the link. Another way is that, as you know, and many people know, uh, the prison system is the largest deliverer of mental health services in the country. And so sometimes people go to prison and their uh, mental health improves because they are... Uh, they're treated, they receive medication, they may receive a degree of psychiatric care. Um, in fact, there was one person that I was very fond of who was quite mentally ill. I was talking to the person at the shelter, uh, you know, what, what, what were we going to do about him? And uh, she said that she hoped that he would be arrested and he would go to jail, not prison, but just our local county jail, um, become, uh, you know, uh, gets mental health care and support. And then we could, when he got out, he would be able to have the capacity to um seek housing and maybe a job. So the connection was that people who are already unhoused can get some of their mental health needs met at the jail. That is, of course, far from where we want people to have to turn for mental health care, but it does work out like that sometimes. Um, another time I had a conversation with someone, um, I was just out on the parking lot and I said something like, um, let's see if I can remember the conversation, something like, uh, oh, it's getting cold. And uh, let's see, that's not what it was. I said, oh no, I said, oh, how are you doing? And um, he looked at me like I was crazy and said, have you seen the weather report? And I don't think I was aware of the weather report. And um, he said, it's getting cold tonight. It's going to be below freezing. And um, then I, you know, that didn't particularly ring a bell to me. And then he said that he was going to go, he was thinking about committing a crime so that he would be arrested and be able to stay in the jail. So that's a time where a person uh, was using the jail because no other form of housing was available. Um, that's sort of heartbreaking too. Um, those are three ways that I can think of that um, that mental mental health and incarceration interact that I see that at the shelter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you're also highlighting at least, you know, there's the subtext that the sort of public mental health system, um, that whatever its flaws existed in this country <laughs> um, in the 1970s and was dismantled in the 1980s, at least for my, um, my read of history, like that, uh, what what happened after um, the system was dismantled again, however flawed it was, is there there was really nothing to replace it other than people f uh, finding their ways into jails and prisons where they would have needs met as you know imprisoned people that they couldn't have met um, outside of prison and. Obviously, you know, uh, <laughs> you have to ask some questions about your society and its priorities when somebody is thinking of committing a crime simply to have housing on a night um, when temperatures are dropping below freezing, right? right. Like what kind of society is that? 
Um, exactly. Uh, one, as I said, um, a one that's in the thrall of idolatries, <laughs> uh, the idolatry of wealth and the idolatry of whiteness. So uh, that's sort of where I ended up in the book. But there's there's more to be said. Yes. Well, uh, that that connects to my next question. Um, <laughs> So, so in, in your view, and you express this very uh, eloquently in the book, um, so what are the root causes of homelessness in the U.S.? Um, and why has, why has this issue become so much more acute, at least in my view, in 2022 than, say, 1972, you know, 50 years ago? Right. Well, I think you can talk about sort of proximate reasons and uh, then more abstract and general reasons. I mean, this is my latest way of thinking about it. Um, Our corporate, we can say sin, I'm a theologian, our corporate sin in this country is poverty. Um, And that's one of them. Another one is a lack of affordable housing. Another one is a lack of jobs that pay a living wage. And against that background of corporate failure, um, people are vulnerable. They may have uh, the vulnerability of mental illness or the vulnerability of um, substance use disorder or, or another sort of illness or the vulnerability of having a, being in a family that is broken down. And when those individual vulnerabilities meet our corporate national failures, then uh, homelessness is a result. And um, I, I uh, identified, as I said, two particular, um, I think, forms of evil. I called them idols uh, in our, in our nation, national idols. And one of them is neoliberal capitalism. And, um, as you know, neoliberal, neoliberalism is, um, a step beyond classical capitalism. It's been called capitalism on steroids. And that's, it's, uh, an economic system where social funds for social services are cut, uh, Safety and environmental regulations are cut. Taxes on the rich are cut. And um, the result is greater poverty, uh, fewer services, uh, more children living in extreme poverty. The other idol, I think, is um, white supremacy, that we think that our whiteness uh, can and should save us from um, from all that is threatening to us. And so we maintain this system, we support it, uh, of course, always in subtle ways, never obvious ways, because we think whiteness, our white privilege, um, and we think our wealth is what will save us from core human vulnerabilities, such as... Um, mortality, the fragility of relationships, the fragility of social systems, and so forth. So um, on a larger, more abstract level, I think it's these, it's our national idolatries that are responsible for homelessness. Yeah, and obviously it's a complex picture, but... Uh, Very complex, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I, I think <laughs> neoliberalism and white supremacy are certainly some of the roots. Um, no question about that, at least in my mind. Um, so uh, so you, you highlighted the vulnerability um, that one of the uh, unhoused folks you were dealing with in, in this parking lot at the shelter um, expressed right? There's sort of the vulnerability of to environmental conditions. Um, but we are speaking, hopefully, at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll see, of course. Um, so, so I'm wondering, how, like, how do you think you would have conceived um, of the issue of homelessness differently, um, if, if at all, of course? Um, had you written this book either solely during the pandemic or in the aftermath of the pandemic? 
Um, because I, you know, from my view, working with folks living on the streets, um, I just, I had never even thought about the vulnerability one would feel to a pandemic if you had no place to go and there was a respiratory, um, you know, virus being passed from person to person, right? That's, that's a different level of vulnerability that I think uh, many of us had considered, even those of us working sort of in the streets. Right. Well, um, the truth is the prayer service has practically shut down. I mean, we meet in sort of a very abbreviated form once a week since COVID. Um, so I can't say that I have a lot of firsthand experience, but you're right. I think the the feeling of vulnerability and the fact of vulnerability will be much more pronounced. Fortunately, in Durham, uh, there was a pretty good response to um, to COVID when they greatly reduced the density of people in my shelter and opened up hotel rooms for people to stay in and had um, particular rooms set aside for people who uh, were living with COVID. Uh, so um, I honestly, that's, it's, I can't, I don't really have a lot to say about that. Um, but yeah, but, but I do want to say one more thing, which sort of, um, you, you mentioned it earlier about spiritual care for people living without homes and, and just how great, how vulnerable they are. And I want to, I mean, part of the purpose of this book is to make a plea for seeing people without homes as more um, multivalent, more nuanced than um, simply people who need social services. And I wanted to, I want to recognize just how hard both living without a home is and trying to get out of homelessness is. Both of them are really hard. And in order to get out of homelessness or survive homelessness, you need to have hope. You need to um, feel like uh, it's worth it that you have some sort of purpose that you're continuing to live for. Um, I think spirituality and uh, faith confer a degree of dignity as one of God's beloved children. Um, Religious communities, prayer services provide community. And all of these things, hope, purpose, dignity, community, I think are central to the kind of fortitude that's necessary to survive and get out of homelessness. Um, homelessness is, is uh, humiliating, uh, it's lonely, it's violent, and um, I want to lift up the spiritual resources that people have called on to, to survive homelessness. Yeah. I uh, wanted to make sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. I, I, I guess when I, when I think of vulnerability, it's, it's almost what folks who live on the streets are exposed to that others take for granted, right? Like the fact that you were not paying close attention to the weather, like that makes perfect sense given your circumstance, right? But, as, you know, I'm somebody who studies religion and uh, like environmental issues. So I've often thought about how when we talk about climate change, who is exposed, you know, to to the worst aspects of climate change, mm-hmm. you know, that, like one, there's an uneven distribution, but two, there are some people who will be exposed more and, uh, you know, sooner and folks who live on the streets, right? There's just a, there's an exposure uh, that maybe that's a better term than vulnerability, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just conditions that people just don't even think to think about if you know what I mean. Right, 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 right. Exposure is a good word. I mean, within the word exposure, the suggestion of vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I would absolutely agree. There's a fortitude that exists um, in people who've been living on the streets that I think is hard for many who have not experienced that to even fathom, right? To live one night and survive one night on the streets is a minor miracle or just a miracle. 
um, I, I often would say uh, when speaking about the work that I did um, in San Francisco with, with the homeless population, um, that you know, if, if you put any single human being on the streets for one night, um, they could they could experience PTSD, you know, for for who knows how long afterwards, because that that feeling of exposure to the elements, to other people, to potential violence, right? That that's just something that human beings, at least in much of the United States, given the wealth, given sort of recent history, just haven't had to deal with that kind of exposure. Um, however, obviously, folks living on the streets have, and you know, folks in some communities really have to deal with very different conditions. Right, which which draws me to another one of my, uh, I think, takeaways from the book is that when you are that exposed, when you are that vulnerable, um, it is possible that you develop habits of depending on God and God alone. You develop that wisdom, you develop spiritual practices um, that enable you to survive danger, um, uh, like you said, uh, exposure. Um, and so I, I, I really wanted to highlight those habits and wisdom that have emerged from conditions of great vulnerability and exposure. And it, it makes the link to liberation theologies um, clear to me, where liberation theologies who talk about God's uh, option for the poor, that if you want to draw close to God, you draw close to the poor, that God is revealed in a particular way, certainly not the only way, but in a particular way among people on the margins. And uh, so that's a, a, a theological point that I wanted to make in the book, that uh, to underscore and echo some of the claims of liberation theology. Yeah, I think your, your final section about proximity um, yeah, I, I think that that is a great word that I've heard, you know, folks like Brian Stevenson um, invoke, you know, when, when they're talking about how it's, it's hard to hate anybody when, when you're so close to them, right? Because you see them as full human beings, right? You see them for all their flaws, but for all the grace that they bring, you know, to the world. Um, right. I, Did you say grace? Yes. Yes. That's a great word for all the grace they bring to the world. Well, that's, that's, that's good. That's the hope, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, your closing section uh, does a nice job of of discussing that, right? Because especially, again, thinking about living in the midst of a pandemic, right? Many of us have sort of shrunk our communities um, if we were able to, right? Be, you know, maybe you're working from home or maybe, you know, you have to go into the office, but when you come home, you know, you see just your immediate family, right? So we're really sort of, uh, shrinking our, you know, our social groups, our, you know, our tribes, um, in a way that, again, if, if you are, don't have the choice to sort of shrink your life down in that way, um, you may be proximate even during a pandemic. Um, and, you know, there's, there's lessons to be learned from folks who haven't been able to opt out of the worst of the pandemic. Right, right. right. Exactly. I think that's a very good insight. I also like the word shrink, um, a shrunken world. It's kind of where we've, where we are right now in many ways, hopefully coming out soon. Yes, hopefully. Hopefully spring will allow us to uh, <laughs> have those seeds that were planted uh, grow, grow again. Okay. Uh, as we conclude, uh, I'm wondering if you might read a section uh, of the book from the preface. Sure. I'll give you a little bit of the context. The, there's great risk in um, representing people different from you um, and representing people who are different racially, uh, by gender, uh, by class. And the risk, of course, is that you will um, not only get it wrong, but violate them and in your distortions or your inaccuracies or possibly even in your reproduction of harmful stereotypes. Um, but I decided to write this book anyway. And uh, this excerpt that I'm going to read uh, explains why I decided to write it. Um, 
I write in order to surface the theological perspectives and religious habits of people who live without homes or in extreme poverty to recognize them as practical theological thinkers. I seek to honor the theological facility of people rarely recognized beyond being someone who needs to be fixed, helped, pitied, or changed. There is risk in not writing this book. It is the risk of participating in the forces that render invisible and insignificant the people with whom I work. Nancy Shepard Hughes says, quote, seeing, listening, touching, recording can be, if done with care and sensitivity, acts of fraternity and sisterhood, acts of solidarity. Above all, they are the work of recognition. Not to look, not to touch, not to record can be the hostile act, the act of indifference and of turning away, end of quote. Trusting that not to look and not to speak is a form of hostility, even an act of violence. I risk embarking on this journey of attempting to represent while being changed by the people I serve at the shelter. So I proceed, trusting in the power of God to redeem all our feeble and sinful efforts. My hope is that it will serve some good that I will help some people feel that their suffering has borne fruit for the sake of others, and that I have been faithful to people who have entrusted me with their stories, testimonies, and prayers. All right. Thank you. <laughs> that was my guest, Susan Dunlap, author of Shelter Theology, The Religious Lives of People Without Homes, published by Fortress Press in 2021. The book is now available online and in bookstores across the country. This concludes another episode of the New Books Network. Until next time.